I'm really looking forward to meditating on this passage with you today, especially in light of the fact that you and I don't need to be convinced by anybody uh, that we live in a very difficult world. Uh, You and I uh, face calamities and difficulties of our own. Uh, We're surrounded by a world that is in decay and moral corruption not only in our own community, but nationally and internationally. We hear the news every day, and it seems like it brings uh, new news about uh, just horrible things that are happening in this world. And so in light of that, I think it's important for us from time to time to, to look ahead and look ahead to the time when our Lord comes again, because he is coming again. And to look ahead to that time to consider who we will be then and what our lives will be like when we are renewed and restored, when we have new bodies and we're living in a time and a place where there is no sin and no sorrow and no death, no corruption at all. And I think as we look forward to that glorious day when that happens, when all of us will be raised from the dead and those of us who are still alive will be caught up in a cloud when Christ comes again in glory. As we look forward to that time, it has a great bearing on who we are today, right now. Because in that day, we're going to be as Christ is. But if we have put our trust in our Lord Jesus Christ already, In a very real sense, we are already like him because we're called to imitate Christ. We're called to be like him in our character by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And the reason for this is that we are God's children and therefore we should look like our Father. I love the old saying that that says, the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree. You all know that one. I've heard that one all my life. In other words, like father, like son, like mother, like daughter. Uh, We are the product of our parents. We're the product of those who were around us, who loved us and cared for us when we were growing up. We're even the product of those we hang out with now. Uh, So the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree. We become like those uh, who have raised us. We become like those uh, who we are around. And so what we're going to find today in 1 John, that as children of God, we're to look like our God. We're to look like our Savior in our character, in our nature, in the way we behave, in the things that we say, and so on and so forth. And in short, we are called uh, to obedience to Christ because the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree, does it? You don't find oranges under an apple tree and you don't find apples under an orange tree you find the apples that grew on that tree. And we are the offspring of our great God and his gospel. And so John wrote this letter, uh, 1 John. Uh, This is the John who was the apostle and and a disciple of Christ. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He also wrote the Gospel of John. And he was the one to whom God gave that glorious revelation uh, in the next book, uh, at the very end of the Bible, the, the story that we see 
in Revelation. And John was, was writing for a specific purpose. Uh, the reason he wrote 1 John, uh, it, it isn't really like the other letters in the New Testament, by the way. There's not a greeting and a closing and all those sorts of things. It lacks that, that kind of personal touch. It's almost written as a Bible tract that we might hand out to, to somebody on the street. Uh, but in this letter, uh, John is concerned with his uh, readers who are surrounded by uh, false teachers who have been denying the divinity and the humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so what he's, what he's doing in this letter is he's affirming uh, one of the central truths of the gospel, and that is the incarnation of Christ. We all know or are familiar with the opening words of, of John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that Word came and dwelt among us in the flesh. And so uh, this is what John is, is affirming. He's affirming the, the sort of non-negotiable nucleus of Christianity, that Christ is fully God and fully man. And he's also affirming our participation in that gospel, in the fact that we are called to exhibit the same sound doctrine that Christ preached. We're called to exhibit obedience toward Christ in all that he expects of us. And we're also called to love our brothers uh, as God calls us to love him. In other words, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. And in fact, if we find that we are not in obedience to Christ, if we reject his teaching, then we are not true Christians. This is the challenge that John is laying before us in this first letter. And so let me go ahead and read our passage this morning. We're going to be in, uh, beginning in the second chapter uh, of 1 John, uh, beginning in verse 28. And we're going to go through to verse 3 of chapter 3. And so let's follow along together. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. Hallelujah and amen. We have a glorious hope as we look to the future, but we also have a glorious hope as we look to our present because of who we are in Jesus Christ. So as we dig into this uh, passage, we can divide it up into three parts. Uh, in the first part, uh, we, we can uh, look at verses 28 and 29, and we see our calling to abide in Christ uh, so that our entire lives are about Him and lived for Him. The second part is in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3, and there we see the Father's love 
this wonderful, incredible, almost indescribable love that he has for us. And then finally, verse 3 of chapter 3, we see the third part, and we see the idea of purity as we walk as children of God. And so first, let's look at this idea that we are to abide in Christ as we keep in mind that the apple does not fall very far from the tree, that we are to be like father, like son. We are to be like our Savior. So in verse 28, it says, And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. What does it mean to abide in Christ? What does it mean to abide in him? Well, this means that we remain in Christ, that we are steadfast in all of what the Bible says He is and who He is and all of His teachings. We take all of Jesus and not part of Him. What John is driving at here is is he wants, wants his readers to remember what they have learned, as he says, from the beginning. That is, from the time that Christ appeared in the flesh and walked among us. Uh, and when he died on the cross and rose again from the dead. And he even means from the very beginning, the beginning of the beginning in the creation story and how God created all things. And Adam and Eve walked with their God in the presence of God, uncorrupted by sin. And he wants us to remember everything in between because the entire Bible is about our Lord Jesus Christ and His plan of redemption. And so, in verse 24 of of chapter 2 of 1 John, uh, John writes this, Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. In other words, if we call ourselves Christians, we can't just cherry-pick the parts we like about Jesus and throw away the rest. We can't uh, uh, embrace some of his teachings but reject many of them. We can't choose to accept the ethics of Christ but then deny his authority as the Son of God. We can't uh, choose to accept his teaching on love but deny his justice towards sinners and so on. We also cannot deny the divinity of Christ. Remember that Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit in a miraculous way. This was an act of God. And so therefore, He is the Son of God. And in fact, He is God. As John uh, uh, says, or quotes Jesus in John eight fifty eight. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. You hear what Jesus is doing. He's using the same terminology that God used with Moses when he appeared to Moses up on that mountain. And he said, I am. I have always been and I will always be. I am the one true God and there is no other God besides me. And so you must worship me. You must worship me. And so Jesus is saying the same thing about himself that He is one with the Father, that He is God. He is one with the Father, and He is one with the Holy Spirit. And so we cannot deny the divinity of Jesus Christ and say that we are followers of Christ. Likewise, we can't deny the humanity of Christ. 
because Christ was born of a woman, wasn't he? And he felt, he cried, he endured pain, he got hungry, he got thirsty, and when he hung on the cross, he bled real blood. Jesus was a man. He was fully God, and he was fully man. You see, if we deny any of these fundamental truths about our Lord, we deny his whole gospel. To deny any one part of it is to say no to Christ. We must take Christ for who he is, not who we want him to be. And so to abide in Christ means that we believe in everything that the prophets and the apostles have taught us about him. Everything that the word of God says about our Lord is true. And so we receive his gospel of grace through the forgiveness of sins, through the fact that Jesus the man died on the cross and Jesus the God-man was the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And so we receive the entire gospel. And as we receive the entire gospel, this also means that something happens to us. This isn't intellectual assent. What this is, is when we receive the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ by the grace he demonstrated to us on the cross, it means that we become changed people. We become, in the words of Paul, new creatures. And so we put on our new selves and we strive every single day to imitate Christ all the more. This is just what Christians do. And so this is what John is driving at here in this passage, is that the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree. And so we abide in Christ. Why? Well, we look at verse 28 and we begin to see one of the great blessings of abiding in Christ. We abide in Christ so that when he appears, do you see this promise here? There is the promise that Christ is going to come again. This is the pinnacle of the gospel that we have been taught from the very beginning. Christ will come again. This is a reality. Conrad read about it a little bit ago. Jesus has, has res- been resurrected from the dead and, and he's been walking with his disciples for about a month and he's shown them the wounds in his hands and his feet. He's not a ghost. He's not an apparition. And he's not a different person either. This is the same Christ who hung on the cross and he's no longer dead. He died, but now he's alive. He's alive. And so the disciples are are learning from him and soaking in uh, his teaching after his resurrection. And as they're talking to him one day, all of a sudden he, he ascends into heaven in a cloud bodily. He goes, his body goes up into heaven. And they're standing there watching, amazed. And and then these two angels in white robes stand by and they say, Men of Galilee. Why do you stand uh, looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So what does that mean? That means that Christ is going to return bodily. That means that someday 
We, you and I, those of us who abide in Christ, who have put our trust in the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, you and I are going to be in the very presence of our Lord, His physical presence. What a glorious future we have. And so Paul puts it like this in Philippians 3.20. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What a glorious promise. We await our Savior who is going to return bodily from heaven to take us all up, to be with Him forever and ever and ever. This is the rapture we're talking about. This is at the, at the end of time when, when all Christians, both living and dead, will be caught up in this cloud with Christ to, to meet the Lord in the air. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them. That is, those who have died, those Christians who have died before us, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then listen to what he says next. And so we will always be with the Lord. We will be forever in his physical presence. And there's a whole bunch of associated promises with that. But brothers and sisters, as you consider that, that Christ is coming again, you remember that there's a lot of controversy about the order of events that's going to happen with that. But here in 1 John, John isn't, concerned about those things he's not concerned about that controversy and so I I beg of you after the service today don't stand around and debate those things about whether Christ is coming pre-tribulation or mid-tribulation or post-tribulation or whether Christians will experience the tribulation or whether the thousand year reign is is a literal thousand years or a symbolic one because if you do that you're going to be missing the whole point of this passage because the point of this passage is the question, are you ready for him to come? Are you abiding in Christ? Are you living for your Lord or are you living for yourself? What John wants us to consider is whether we are ready as people who abide in Him, in Christ. And so he says in verse 28, abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. I remember early in our marriage, this is many moons ago now, uh, Leslie went away for a weekend or a few days, I don't remember what it was, and while she was gone, I reverted to my bachelor ways. And the dishes piled up in the sink, and the laundry covered the floor, and there were cups all over the place. The house was an absolute wreck. And she can imagine the reaction she had when she got home. But the shame was on me. Because in that, I had dishonored my wife. I had not shown that I loved my wife because I didn't care for her in one of the most important ways that I could. 
And that's the same thing that we do with our Lord if we've got dirty dishes in our house that we're not dealing with. I think some of us in this room may may have a lot of dirty dishes. There may be some things that you have not yet repented of. You may be involved in some sort of besetting sin that repeats itself over and over and over in your life because you're depending on it rather than on your Lord. And so what John is saying to you today, right now, is that right now is the time to deal with that. Maybe you're beginning to realize that you are a sinner for the first time and you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ. Right now is the time to receive Christ, to receive His grace, to receive what He did for you on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins what Christ did for you, if you will receive this grace, is that He has washed you clean. You are as white as snow. But if you reject Him, you are condemned. Your own sins condemn you. If you're a believer who's been struggling with sin for a long time, right now is the time to deal with that sin. You are surrounded by mature brothers and sisters to whom you can confess that sin and begin to deal with that sin in your life. That's what us pastors are here for. It's what the elders are here for. It's what your brothers and sisters are here for. But the time is right now. The time to receive Christ is right now. The time to clean up the dirty dishes in your life is right now. And the reason is, is because He could come back any time, any moment. And when He does, it'll be too late. And if you die this afternoon, it'll be too late. Right now is the time. And so I hope your conversations after this service today have to do with this question of whether you're ready for him to come, whether you are ready even to die. And we're happy to talk with you about that and walk you through that. But you see, when Leslie got home that weekend, after that weekend, I wasn't ready for her to drive into the driveway. And you can imagine the expression on my face when she did. And so what we want to be is confident when our Lord, figuratively speaking, drives into the driveway when he returns for us to take us home. We want to be confident. We want to be confident that we have been living for him and honoring him with our lives. This is the point that John is making. The the Greek word for confidence here has the sense of freedom in speaking, of unreservedness in speech, free and fearless confidence, cheerful courage, a boldness, an assurance. This is the heart attitude of somebody who is living so close to the Lord Jesus that there is nothing in between him and Christ. And so if that's you, you are ready for him to come. You are ready for your last heartbeat. You are ready. If this is the way that you're living, if you are bowing before God and asking the Holy Spirit to reveal sin to you so you can deal with it, and so the Holy Spirit can can show you that there is sin in your life and that you need to deal with it. 
This is John's point in chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. He says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Linger on that verse for a moment. Read it up there on the screen again. Look into the mirror, the figurative mirror at yourself, and wonder if this is true about you. Are you saying that you have no sin? Well, look at who you are. If that's the case, the truth is not in you. Those are hard words. But look at what happens when we do confess our sin in verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, all of it. And so we depend on the grace that our Lord showed us on the cross. We depend on Him to wash us clean. But there is some participation required, right? And that is that we confess our sins. That is that we seek after God and we seek to imitate Christ in all of who we are because we know who He is and He is the perfect and righteous Savior. And so what this requires of us is a dependence on the Holy Spirit to reveal our sin and to give us the the grace that we need to be able to see our sin as sin and to just eject it from our lives. Paul says to kill our sin. Do violence to our sin. Get rid of it. Do whatever it takes to get rid of that sin so that you can be like Christ. I love the way Jerry Bridges puts it in his book, The Pursuit of Holiness. He says... God has made provision for our holiness. Through Christ, He has delivered us from sin's reign so that now we can resist sin. In other words, uh, when we were saved, the Holy Spirit came and dwelled in us. And for the very first time in our lives, we were able to say yes to God and no to sin. Before we knew Christ, we couldn't do that. All we could do is say yes to sin and no to God. And so what a travesty it is, brothers and sisters. Can you see how this offends God when we say yes to sin instead of yes to God? He's given us the power through the Holy Spirit to make godly choices. We're not going to be perfect every time, of course. That's why we need His grace. That's why we need to confess our sin. And His grace is there when we do. But then Bridges goes on to say, that the responsibility for resisting sin is ours. God does not do that for us. And he goes on to to explain how the heart is deceitful. And sometimes we even think that mental assent to the word of God is the same thing as obedience. That's where I used to be. I used to think, well, yes, Lord, I I agree that this is sin, but, you know, you understand. I can't help it. What I'm admitting in that is that sin has control over me and not God. But as children of God, we want the Holy Spirit to have control, right? We desire the holiness of God because we are apples that don't fall very far from the tree. And so... Heaven forbid that we should ever think that just agreeing that sin is sin is enough. We need to obey as well. We need to do what God says. You see, the point is is that we prove the power of the gospel when we live it, not just when we think about it. 
Our opinions about the gospel matter very little without our action. Our opinions matter very little without our obedience. Our opinions aren't what get us into heaven. The grace of God, praise be to God, is what gets us into heaven. Grace alone through Christ alone. But we have a responsibility, and that responsibility is to live for Him by obeying Him, by accepting His whole gospel and seeing ourselves in light of that gospel and confessing our sin when the Holy Spirit brings it to mind. And so, brothers and sisters, if we're no different from the world, in fact, if we're not markedly different from the world, then I think it's a fair question for us to ask whether we really are followers of Christ. Now, if that scares you when I say that, praise be to God, because it means you care. It means you do love the Lord and you want to live as he lived, you want to imitate Christ. But if that statement doesn't scare you, then I fear for your soul. We need to care about the things that Christ cares about. We need to take hard looks at ourselves with the Holy Spirit's help and see whether we're living for Christ. That's a difficult truth. Don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that we earn our way into heaven. By no means. But we do have a responsibility as children of God. The apple doesn't fall very far from the tree. We should be imitating Christ to the best of our ability as the Holy Spirit enables us and empowers us. James says in chapter 1 of his letter, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. We need to be doers of the word in addition to hearers of the word. And so as we go back and take another look at verse 29, we see uh, how we can be doers of the word. How do we do that? Well, by looking to the righteousness of Christ. We look to the righteousness of Christ to find out what righteousness is so that we can be as he is, so that we can imitate him. Verse 29 says, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. In other words, those who practice righteousness, uh, the righteousness of Christ, are born of God. To put it another way, those who have been born of God practice righteousness. This becomes our habit. This becomes our way of life. It becomes the goal of every day is to imitate our Lord Jesus Christ. In 3 John 11, it says, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Doesn't get much more simple than that, does it? God takes our sin seriously, even as believers. And what he expects of us is that we're going to pursue Christ because we're children of God, because the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree. And so this is 
This is some of what it means to abide in Christ. This is a great challenge for us. It's a sobering challenge. But there's great blessing in pursuing Christ in this way. There's great blessing in abiding in Christ. And we're going to see this as we look at the second part of our passage and we see the Father's love. Look what it says in verse 1 of chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. John is just sort of wondering out loud here. He's in awe of the love that God has given us. You could, you could translate this, uh, this verse like this. Behold what foreign kind of love the Father has bestowed upon us. You see, this is not, uh, this is not the kind of love that is native to the, to the human race as fallen sinners. This is an otherworldly kind of love. This love is from a distant realm called heaven. But brothers and sisters, this love is also for those who have been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. This love is for those who put their trust in Jesus Christ. This love is for those who embrace all of who Christ is. This is for a saved person. Because only a saved person can truly understand the righteousness of Christ. We can only understand the righteousness of Christ from the perspective of a saved sinner. Those who reject the cross, they don't understand the righteousness of Christ because they don't understand the gravity of sin. They don't understand how holy our Lord is. And so the only way that we can even begin to know and comprehend the righteousness of Christ and how holy He is and how pure He is is if we have been washed clean by His holiness and by His grace. And so God gives us this otherworldly love. He gives it to us. The Greek grammar indicates that this gift uh, becomes a permanent possession for those of us who abide in Christ, for those of us who have been washed clean by His blood. And so if you abide in Him, this means that this love has already been given to you. Uh, This does not mean that you earned the love that God has bestowed upon you. It's the other way around. It's because God has loved you that you then obey Christ and you abide in Christ. It's a reflex action of a Christian. We can't help it. We can't help but desire His holiness. And this is a a never-ending love. It never ends. Not ever. You are loved forever and unfailingly because of the blood of Jesus Christ. I love the words of Peter in, in uh, the first chapter of his first letter. I love this. You can almost, you can almost uh, see the smoke that's just flying off of his quill pen as he's writing this down. He's excited. He's, he's pumped up. He's, he's just rejoicing. And he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by the power, by by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Put that on your bathroom mirror and read it every single morning before you go to work. And your day is going to be a lot better. 
because you're going to be filled with joy that comes from heaven. We have been born again into a living hope through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. We are going to live forever because he lives forever. And so we are recipients of a never-ending, unfailing love. And we go back now to to verse 1 of chapter 3, and we see why. We are children of God. God has given us this love that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Not only are we called children of God, but we are children of God. God has made us His children. You see, the reason for God's amazing love is not only that we could be saved from the suffering and loss that sin uh, causes in us, but we've also, we've also received God's amazing love so that we could become children of God. So now we are the offspring of God. We inherit all of His, the fullness of His blessing. We are the fruit of His gospel. And so as his children, like father, like son, like daughter, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And we want nothing else but to obey him and to live for him because of the glorious blessing of living for him and seeing his glory as he answers our prayers and as he works in our lives. But you see, the world doesn't like this fruit in us. The world doesn't like the fact that we are children of God. This love of God is completely foreign to them. And so John goes on to say the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. You see, as children of God, we are set apart from the world. We are strangers and aliens to the world because we belong to the family of Christ. I remember going over to visit friends when I was a kid and feeling like a foreigner in their house because they did things differently, they ate different food, they uh, behaved differently, and so on. Well, this is what it's like for an unbeliever looking at us. We're just foreign to them. Because we act differently, we talk differently, we behave differently, or at least we should. We should be demonstrations of who Christ is. But you know, I think one of the saddest things that we can do as believers is to look at an, un- uh, at, look at an unbeliever and expect them to be holy. How can they be? They don't know God. They don't have the Holy Spirit in them to enable them to live for Christ. And so what a travesty it is when we take that a step further and we behave as the world behaves toward them. And instead of proving the great love that God has had for us, we prove to them that God hates their guts and that God must not be real because you're not changed. So why should I believe in your Jesus? You see, we're the ones who are called to be set apart. And we're the ones who should be introducing unbelievers 
to the love of Jesus Christ, to the great love that our God has had for us. Why? Because we're children of God and we know his love and we also know how our Lord behaved even when people were carrying out their hatred of him the most as he was being scourged and whipped. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He loved them. He still demonstrated his gospel even when they were doing that to them, that, that kind of stuff to him. And so brothers and sisters, we have been, who have been saved, we are the ones who are called to be set apart. We are the ones who have been called to be holy and to live in purity. We are the ones who have been called uh, to love the things of God and reject the things of this world. In 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 15, John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Let's hit the pause button for a second and look in your mirror again. Are you loving the things of the world instead of your God? Are you depending on the things of the world to satisfy you and give you pleasure? Or are you loving your God? Are you imitating your God because you know uh, his holiness? And so in verse 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. This world is in decay, and we know that. We experience that decay ourselves. But for those of us who know Christ, who are abiding in him, who have been washed clean by his blood, therefore, we do the will of God. And therefore, we will live forever. We will live forever in a time and a place where there is no decay. And so because of the, the permanent and unfailing love of God, we are his children now and we are his children forevermore. And that brings us to one of the most remarkable sentences, I think, in all of Scripture. Verse 2 of our passage in John, 1 John chapter 3. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So to put this another way, the only way that we can see the glory of Christ is for something remarkable to happen to us. And that's what this passage is about. What John is not saying here is that we are children today, right now, but tomorrow when Christ comes, we may be something altogether different. That's not what he's saying. We are his children now and forever. What we will be when Christ appears has to do with what we will physically become when Christ returns physically. And what we will become is absolutely incredible. We are decaying now because of sin. The whole universe has been corrupted by our sin. And that 
the, the penalty of that sin is death. And death is the last enemy to be defeated. And Christ, uh, Christ's resurrection and his ascension and his promised return are what give us the hope that death will indeed be dead. But until then, we experience death. This is the grief that the Kirbys are experiencing right now. As Deanna mourns the loss of her mother. She misses her terribly. We all have loved ones who have gone before us and we miss them terribly. But the glorious thing about Adati, about Deanna's mother, is that she knows the Lord. And so what that means is that she right now is with her, with her God. She is in the presence of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul reminds us, Paul reminds us of the glorious truth for those of us who believe that to be absent from the flesh is to be present with the Lord. That's where she is right now. She is praising her Savior. She is, she is consciously in his presence. She is in heaven. She is safe forevermore. Now, Christ hasn't returned yet. So this is a spiritual state. This is what theologians call the intermediate state. Uh, Christ has not returned, but when he does, something incredible is going to happen to all of us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our bodies are going to be made new. We read uh, Philippians 3, verse 20 a little while ago, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, verse 21 uh, tells us what will happen when our Lord Jesus Christ comes uh, from heaven. He's going to transform our lowly body uh, to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now, we don't know what the glorified body of Christ looks like. But we, what we do know is that it is his body because he still bears the wounds of the cross. And so when he returns, he will return bodily, physically, to retrieve us, to fetch us to heaven. And when that happens, everybody who is a Christian who has died will raise from the dead in glorified bodies. And those of us who are still alive will... Uh, will Take on glorified bodies too. We don't know what that's like. But I think there are some inferences we can gather from what we read. The first thing is, is that you and I will be you and I. We're not going to be a bunch of clones. We're not going to look like twins of Jesus. But you and I are going to be identified as, as you and me and and. You know, Leslie's going to be Leslie and David's going to be David and I'm going to be Scott and so on. But something fundamental happens to us physically when our Lord will return. And I think the thing that we can key in on that gives us the biggest clue as to what is going to happen is the fact that the body of Christ has never endured sin. Christ has never sinned. And so, in our glorified state, 
We're going to be in a time and a place in the new heaven and earth where there is no sin. There is no sickness. There is no sadness. There is no turmoil. There's no controversy. There's none of that stuff that's going on around us right now. And most of all, we're not going to sin anymore. So imagine what you're going to look like without the weight of sin on you. There aren't going to be any more worry lines in your face. You might have some crow's feet, but that's going to be from laughing and singing and praising God in joy so much. But you're not going to have arthritis. We're never going to die. You're not going to have aches and pains. And as you get older, you, you're, you're, gonna, you're not going to age. Your body is not going to decay. Your skin isn't going to become thin and easily bruised. You're not going to have your knees, have to have your knees replaced. Your body is going to be incorruptible. Your body is going to be eternal. And you... You are going to be beautiful beyond imagination. And it gets better. It just keeps getting better and better. Because not only all of that, but we're going to see the glory of God. We're going to see God as He is. The only way that we're going to be able to do that is with our glorified bodies when Christ comes back for us. Nobody has ever been able to witness the glory of God, the full, unmitigated, uh, unveiled glory of God. That's why Moses had to hide his face when he was up on the mountain and the glory of God went by. But we're going to see God the Father in all of His glory. We're going to see Christ as He is in all of His purity, in all of His holiness. Isn't that going to be an amazing sight? And with our new eyes, we're going to be able to see the glory of God. This is going to be better than standing on a mountaintop on a clear day and being able to see forever into the distance in crisp and clear clarity. We are going to see the glory of God. We are going to experience His glory. And this is going to give us a supreme level of joy and happiness. The, it's going to be a blessing in itself just to witness that. Theologians call this the beatific vision. This comes from the same word as the beatitudes or the, the blessings. And so this vision is so wonderful and so fulfilling that the vision itself of God in all of his glory just gives us life. It is the blessing to be in his presence. And to be in his presence means that there is no decay. There is no sin. There is no sorrow. There is none of that. There is only joy in the Lord. And forever and ever and ever and ever, we are going to learn about our God. We are going to learn how great He is forever. And that's possible because our God is infinite. You see, that's the love that God has for us. 
that someday you and I will be able to see and experience his glory. What incredible love. Because you and I started out in this life pretty badly. We are sinners who deserve the opposite. We are sinners who deserve his wrath. But see what love the Father has for us, that we should be called his children, and his children get to see him as he is. What a glorious future we have. But you know, that future has already begun if we put our trust in Christ. Because as we learn to obey Christ, as we learn to imitate Christ, we we see glimpses of his glory and how he works in and through us in our lives in the midst of this difficult life. And this is why uh, John reminds us in verse 3 in the last part of this passage that everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now what John is not saying here is that we purify ourselves to save ourselves. That's not what he's saying. What John is saying is that when you have the hope of seeing the glory of God, when, when you have the hope of seeing Christ as He is in all of His fullness, what else can you do but want purity? What else can you want but holiness? As we get a hold of this future that we have as as people who have been bought by his blood, people who are now called children of God, as we get a, a sense of the glory that we're going to witness and experience, and it's an experience that will never, ever end. 10,000 years from now, we're still going to be looking into eternity. So as people who have been saved by God to witness his glory, how could we want anything else but his purity? The apple doesn't fall very far from the tree. You see, the reason we can't see God now is because there's something wrong in our hearts, right? It's called sin. We all know that. This is what prevented Moses from being able to gaze upon the glory of God. But when Christ comes again, he's going to purify us. That's part of what our glorified bodies will be. We will be purely as he wants us to be. And so Christ touches on this in the Sermon on the Mount. In both the eternal sense and in the sense of the here and now as we live for him. He says in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart. Why? For they shall see God. It is Christ who purifies us. We can never be totally pure now. But brothers and sisters, because of what Christ has done for us, we can learn to catch glimpses of his glory as we learn to rely on the Holy Spirit to reveal our sin and to cause us to repent and cause us to strive with all of our might as the Holy Spirit enables us to strive toward righteousness, to strive toward purity in all that we are and in all that we do because that's who Christ is in all that he is. And so what a glorious future we have 
and what a glorious present we can have as we learn to live as children of God, as men and women and boys and girls who have been changed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we want to do that because the fact is, the reality is that Christ one day, we don't know when it is, but one day he's going to return bodily and we're going to be in his presence. I don't know about you, but I want to be ready for that day. I want to be able to see him with confidence and praise and joy in my heart. But I also want to receive him today. I also want to live as a child of God because the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree because I belong to him. And so let that be our prayer as we leave this place today. Let's pray. Holy and gracious God, thank you, thank you for your love. Thank you for how much you love us. You love us so much that you you want us to see you, to see you as you are right now, as you have always been the perfect, all-wise and only God who is holy and just and who is full of mercy and grace, a God who proved that mercy and grace by sending your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. All honor and glory belong to you, and we look forward to that day when we begin to sing that forever and ever and ever in your presence. Amen and amen.